If you have been regularly with us on Sunday evenings here at the Bible Church, you know that we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, and we're discovering the great truths of chapter 1, and we find ourselves in the very, very important section of Mark 1 on the temptation of Christ. We've entitled the message this evening, The First Temptation of Christ, and we want to develop the very, very important truth that comes to us in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Let me read it to you as the setting for our evening message. Immediately the Spirit impelled him, Christ, to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. In 1988, Director Martin Scorsese touched off one of the angriest religious debates in years with his dubious film, The Last Temptation of Christ. And the film made headlines because it almost completely defamed the biblical account of the life of Christ and obviously had no regard for what happened in biblical reality. And what was all the fuss about back in 1988? Well, if you remember a very important Time magazine article in their August 15th edition, it said this about the film. Powerful, eccentric, bloody, filled with theological gas, temptation is an excruciatingly earnest and freewheeling docudrama based on the 1955 best-selling novel by a tormented Greek Orthodox believer, Nikos Kazantzakis. It is the result of an obsessive 16-year quest by one of Hollywood's most esteemed directors to bring to the screen a struggling Christ who only slowly comes to see himself as the Messiah. The movie, Scorsese says, is my way of trying to get closer to God. For Scorsese, a former altar boy who once wanted to be a priest, the movie is no frivolous matter. Actress Barbara Hershey, who plays Mary Magdalene, gave him a copy of the Kazantzakis novel in 1972, and he has been contemplating it ever since. Kazantzakis, Jesus, he insists, is both human and divine, in accordance with Christian teaching. What interested Scorsese in the author's approach, quote, was that the human part of Jesus would have trouble accepting the divine. As both fully human and fully divine, Jesus is viewed, this time article says, in Christian theology as free of sin but subject to all temptations. Following Kazantzakis, however, Scorsese presents the early Jesus as a weak and dithering collaborator who builds crosses used by the Romans to execute Jewish rebels. Later, he becomes the wild-eyed guru to a band of rag, ragged followers, but remains apprehensive and fundamentally confused about his message and his mission. He persuades Judas, his best friend, to betray him to fulfill God's plan. Now, 
What was the initial response to that film? Do you remember that back in 1988, almost a decade ago? Well, it sparked an outrage, especially from conservative Christians. Even liberal churchmen, while they endorsed the film, were a little uneasy. They were cautiously supportive of this film. The Time Magazine article goes on to say, as conservatives shriek all around them, liberal churchmen have been bending over backward to avoid criticizing the film, stressing Scorsese's right to interpret Jesus in his own way, and sometimes issuing a tepid defense or two. The right Reverend Paul Moore, Jr., Episcopal Bishop of New York, offered one of the strongest defenses, calling temptation, quote, theologically sound, unquote. Though the lovemaking between Jesus and Mary Magdalene may offend some, he said, quote, remember, it's a dream. This is yet another portrait, a work of art, which emphasizes certain aspects of Jesus, end quote. The Reverend William Four of the National Council of Churches similarly sees the movie as, quote, an honest attempt to tell the story of Jesus from a different perspective, end quote. I'll say, that was a different perspective for sure. And how different was the perspective? It says in this Time Magazine article, in the dream sequence, for example, when Jesus interrupts Paul's preaching to explain that he did not die and rise again, Paul says the facts are not important as long as people have something to believe in. This appears to reinforce the familiar and cynical view that Paul invented Christianity and distorted Jesus' teaching. Scorsese's Jesus also makes a number of doctrinal blunders. He announces that his death will pay for his own sins rather than for the sins of mankind. And he picks up dirt and stones and says, this is my body too, which apparently makes him a founder of pantheism as well as Christianity. Now, even though the film was obviously a, bas a blasphemous portrayal of the person of Christ and his temptations, it sparked a number of studies by a number of folks on who Jesus really is and what about his temptations and what about the temptation narratives in the gospel accounts. It sparked a very, very interesting article in Time magazine later on called Who Was Jesus? And in the midst of a whole host of questions that the article raises, in its opening section, it asks very, one very important question that we want to concern ourselves with tonight. And one of the questions that the Time article asked was, quote, what did it mean for Jesus to be tempted by sin? End quote. Now that's a very provocative question to ask, and it's one I hope that when we're through with Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, we will have been able to answer certainly far more biblically than Martin Scorsese ever did, for we trust the Scripture. And we believe that what the Scripture has to say is indeed what God intends regarding the temptation of Jesus Christ. Thank the Lord we don't have to rely on Time magazine for an authoritative answer to that question or a blasphemous filmmaker named Martin Scorsese. What we have is an authoritative, inerrant, inspired, infallible word from God. And it's found for us in Mark 1. Before we can answer the question that Time magazine poses, and I'm sure you have wondered in your own mind a time or two, what did it mean for Jesus to be tempted by sin? 
You remember the setting that we understand from Mark's Gospel in chapter 1. You know that in verse 1, he introduces to us the Gospel. It's like a title, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then rolling into verses 2 through 8, it tells us about the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, the prophecy of his coming, his actual appearance in the wilderness, his preaching of repentance and his ministry of baptism. And then as we studied in Mark 1, verses 9 to 11, describes the baptism of Christ by John the Baptist, and that is where we left off before. And as we move into verses 12 to 13, I want to make sure that you understand, as I must understand, the link-up between the baptism of Jesus and his temptation. Remember last time when we studied this portion of Scripture regarding the baptism of Jesus? We said that in order for him to mark out his public ministry, he must first be validated in that ministry by God the Father himself. And we saw that, didn't we, from Mark, verse, Mark 1, verses 10 and 11. You remember it? In verse 10 of Mark 1, it says that the heavens opened with Jesus, and no doubt John the Baptist seeing it, and the Spirit like a dove descended upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. You know that there, the entire Godhead was at work confirming that Jesus Christ is indeed God's Son. The heavens were opened, God spoke, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and God the Father was speaking to the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, and saying, In you I am well pleased. Well pleased with what? Well, well pleased that indeed the gospel has begun in the person of Christ. Well pleased that the forerunner of Messiah has announced his coming. Well pleased that his only son, now around 30 years of age, has been confirmed as the one who is chosen to be the Savior of sinners. And this is really the apex of the confirmation process as Jesus begins his public ministry. Now, we move to the temptation of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to do tonight is I want you to notice two key features in Mark's temptation narrative. Two key features that mark out, at least from Mark's perspective, the temptation of Jesus Christ. I can give them to you in outline form. Number one, the thrusting of Jesus by the Spirit. The thrusting of Jesus by the Spirit. And secondly, the tempting of Jesus by Satan. The thrusting of Jesus into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. And secondly, the tempting of Jesus Christ in the wilderness by Satan himself. Now, underneath each of these two outline points, I want you to notice that there are going to be three elements underneath each of these points. Each one of them will be the same, these three elements, the time, the person, and the place. Underneath outline point number one, we're going to be talking about the time, the person, and the place. And outline number two will also reveal for us the time, the person, and the place. Let's talk about the first one, the thrusting of Jesus 
by the Holy Spirit. First of all, notice that Mark says in verse 12, and immediately, or immediately. Remember I said to you that this particular word is used often by Mark, sometimes not just to refer to something chronologically, but to link up the different portions of what he wanted to gather in order to communicate to us about the ministry of Jesus. Which one is referred to here? Well, probably both. It's probably referring not just to a chronological link-up, but and immediately in the sense that it links up the baptism account of Christ and his temptation. Immediately on the heels of the baptism of Jesus, Satan is there to attack at the first juncture of his ministry. Before Jesus can even begin to announce the good news, immediately he begins to be attacked by Satan himself. Right after one of the great events of his life, the baptismal confirmation by the Father and the Spirit, Satan is there to attack. You know, it's interesting to me that often in my Christian life, and it may be true of yours as well, that once you have a great spiritual experience, Satan is ready to fix you like weed, isn't he? Once you've had a tremendous experience, maybe it is worship, maybe you've taught a portion of Scripture in a Bible study or in some sort of large group setting, Uh, maybe you've had a tremendous victory in battle, Uh, maybe you've been able to lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you've been encouraged greatly by someone about your good work, and often after that very wonderful experience of blessing by God himself, Satan is there to attack usually with something like, you're pretty good, you're doing it well, sit back, relax, pat yourself on the back, you're through for a while, you can glory in in all the kudos that you're now going to receive. And I think in some ways that may have very well been the experience of Christ himself. After the wonderful confirmatory blessing of the baptism, where the heavens are rent. God says, in you I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Jesus Christ is being confirmed wonderfully, majestically, and now the Holy Spirit is thrusting him into the wilderness. By the way, the person, the person under outline point number one, it is the Spirit. Immediately it says, the Spirit. You notice notice it there in verse 12? The Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Now, we have a potential theological problem here. Notice that it says, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. It doesn't necessarily bring the force out of this potential theological problem here, but in some of the other gospel accounts, it specifically says, the Spirit impelled or compelled him, that is Christ, into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by Satan. Now, what's the potential theological problem there? Well, we know, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is God, right? And it says in James 1 that the Holy Spirit, who is God, cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt any man. It says in James 1, Verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And that presents to us a theological conundrum. How can it be that the Holy Spirit, being God, cannot, by that very nature of being God, tempt any man, nor can he be tempted, and yet here in Mark 1 and the parallel gospel say that the Holy Spirit compelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness to be tested. If the Holy Spirit being God cannot be tested or tempted by evil and he does not tempt anyone to do sin to be evil, what's going on here? Is the Holy Spirit violating his own nature? by calling Jesus forth into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Well, if you remember the little temptation series that we presented to you when we first came to the Bible Church, now around seven months ago, I said the answer to that problem all hinged on the word test or tempt. You remember that? Remember I said that the key word there is terasmos. Terasmos. It's used in James 1 in each of those verses that I mentioned. And it's speaking of a test or a temptation. And clearly, whenever the Bible writers believed that parasmas being used was a reference to God's work in the life of a person, it should legitimately be translated test. It was not a solicitation to do evil. It was actually the plan and purpose of God to bring a person to greater usefulness greater sanctification, greater maturity, greater growth. When, however, the context clearly is speaking of Satan and his temptations, it is always a solicitation to do evil. Satan would never test a person in order to grow or mature their faith in Christ. Never. Likewise, God, when he tests his saints, it is never with a solicitation to do evil. It is always the plan of God to mature and to grow and to sanctify his own. And it is always the plan of Satan to destroy, to debilitate, to do everything he can to tempt a person to solicit them to do evil. And now, of course, you understand what the Holy Spirit is doing here. The Holy Spirit is not tempting Jesus Christ by impelling him into the wilderness to be tempted, to be solicited to do evil, he is impelling him, he's compelling him to go into the wilderness to be tested, to be confirmed, to grow in his understanding of his heavenly Father, and he will. And Jesus, by the way, will go willingly. He will go voluntarily into the wilderness to be tested. And here, even though his ministry is not yet begun, he will freely follow the Father's will in everything. 
And this is all a part of the Father's plan for Christ to understand in greater ways all the things that as a man he will yet experience. That's why Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This will be one of those events, the temptation of Christ, and he will be confirmed by God. And I can't help resist talking for a moment about that word impelled. Some of your Bible translations may say compelled or led or even thrust out. Because it comes from the Greek word ekbalo. And it doesn't mean always to force against someone's will. Sometimes it does mean that. It means to throw or to cast out. The little word ek means out of and balo means to throw. To throw out of or to compel or impel. And it's a word that talks about continuous action. The Holy Spirit was continually compelling Jesus to go into the wilderness. By the way, if the time is immediately and the person is the Spirit, the place is the wilderness. The wilderness. The Holy Spirit is taking Jesus Christ into the wilderness, verse 12 says. And it is an important and crucial encounter that Jesus Christ is about to engage in. It was done this way so that Satan would understand that the very beginning of Jesus' miracle-working ministry has an authority over even creation itself. An authority over the demons. An authority where he will gain the victory in his very first encounter. And this is crucial. This is absolutely fundamental to the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. The very domain of Satan is the wilderness. It's a place of barrenness. It's a place of temptation. Anyone, you and me included, as we talk about John the Baptist and his ministry, would have great difficulty living in the wilderness. I've been over there. I've taken a couple of trips and I've seen the Judean wilderness. And it is a very, very barren place. It's a very dark place, especially at night. The winds would be able to, to pick up at feverish pitches, storms that would come out almost from nowhere. And it is a place where the encounter with the demonic, the encounter with beasts and wild animals, and the lack of food will be very, very evident. And yet... In the plan and purpose of God, this is exactly where God wants Christ to be at this moment. Why? Well, a number of passages which would teach us that very clearly, but one is so very clear, maybe then all the rest. 1 John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But notice this. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. What was the purpose of the Son of God appearing? To destroy the work of the devil. You see, it was the very purpose of God from eternity past to take the second person of the Godhead and in his incarnation and initial public ministry thrust him out by the Holy Spirit's power into the wilderness so that at the very first place Christ can be said to be destroying the work of the devil. 
And that's why the language of Mark 1.12 is so forceful. The Holy Spirit compelling him, ek balo, forcing him out, thrusting him into the wilderness, not against his own will, but in line with his will, so that Christ may fight the great temptation. The first temptation. The temptation for which, if he is successful, will thrust him into public ministry in a major, major way. Someone said the Holy Spirit compelled him to go out to the encounter. If Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, a conflict with the devil could be expected at the very beginning of Christ's ministry. There, on the rocky, barren hillsides of the wilderness of Judea, the Holy Spirit pushes, drives, compels Jesus to be tempted. The Spirit then is both a gentle dove at the baptism, and now is this same Holy Spirit of power who impels Jesus into the wilderness. And the wilderness is the perfect place. You say, as many have said, why the wilderness? Why wouldn't it have been a greater stage, a greater platform for Christ, maybe in Jerusalem or in Jericho, to be tested or tempted by Satan in front of everyone? Why wouldn't it have been better for a stage to have been set right at the first place of his ministry so that thousands upon thousands of people would have seen Jesus resisting the temptation and his victory over Satan right then and there? Why in the wilderness? Why in a place that was dark and barren where people were not the inhabitants, only wild beasts? Why? Why in the wilderness? I'll tell you why. Because... Jesus Christ must prove and demonstrate, if for Satan only himself, that he can withstand the full brunt of satanic temptation alone. By himself. Not with the aid of anyone around him. Not with the aid even of physical nourishment in his body. Not with the aid of anything or anyone around him. He's going to withstand temptation by Satan and his dominant assault once and for all. And it's very interesting also that you know that there are many, many reasons why the wilderness is the right place for this to occur. I want you to turn in your Bible to a number of different passages which show why this should be the case. Turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4, at the beginning portion of your Bible, this again speaks of the tremendous, intricate plan and purpose of God. Nothing to chance. God will show himself precise and perfect in all of the details of Jesus' life. And this is one of them. Why the wilderness? Exodus 4, verse 22 says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, that's God speaking to Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me, that you have refused to let him go. Behold, 
I will kill your son, your firstborn. And you know what that speaks to, don't you? Let my son go. Go where? Go where? From Egypt to where? The wilderness. You remember how the children of Israel kicked against that idea, didn't they? They didn't know what was out in the wilderness. They knew it was a forsaken place. They knew it was a place where there was going to be great temptation. Where would we get our food? Where would we have our shelter? What about our nourishment? What about our children? Are they just going to die in the wilderness? And yet God says, have my people go there. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, a similar idea. Jeremiah 2.2 Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem saying this. Now this is the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothal, your following after me in the where? The wilderness, through a land not sown. You see, it's in the wilderness that the Jews are to go. Why? To learn the lessons that they must learn. Just as Jesus is to be tempted in the wilderness, so the children of Israel were to be tested in the wilderness. Even in Hosea chapter 11, it speaks again of this very, very key component in God's plan. Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baal, to the gods, and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, that they did not know that I healed them. In other words, when the children of Israel were not responding within the bondage that God had given them, or if they had responded, the next place was always the wilderness. The wilderness was where they were to go. Why? Because they had total dependence on God. There was no other place to go. There was no other person to turn to. You know that. I know that. We are far more dependent upon God, are we not, when we cannot turn to anyone else. We can't turn to a spouse. We can't turn to a family. We can't turn to friends. We can't turn to neighbors. When we can't even trust ourselves, we are left with complete and utter dependence upon God himself. And that's exactly the lesson that God wanted the children of Israel to learn. God wanted through Exodus 4 and Jeremiah 2 and Hosea 11 that they would be his children and they would learn that lesson in the wilderness. And the ancient promise all the way back even up to the person of Christ himself was that Christ's pilgrimage was to be in the wilderness. This was to be his exodus. 
This was to be his place, the place where he was going to learn. Now, do you remember verse 5 of Mark 1? It says, All the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to the Jordan because it was in the wilderness of Judea that God would visit his people. The wilderness, while being a forsaken place, was also the place that every true Jew knew was the place where God would ultimately visit his people. That's why it says in Mark 1 that people went out to see John the Baptist in the wilderness because they assumed that because of the stories about him, he might indeed be the true Messiah. And then when Christ goes out to be baptized by John in the Jordan, he now comes to the place of going into the wilderness. That's his place of great testing. The time, immediately. The person, the Holy Spirit, thrusting Jesus, the place, the wilderness, to be tempted. Secondly, the tempting by Satan himself. We go from the thruster to the tempter. Notice again the time. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. What was Christ doing for those 40 days? And why 40? You know, it's always interesting to me when I read my Bible and when I study it, not just to gloss over these things and just to assume that 40 was all that it was and nothing more. 40 days had no particular significance. But I often ask myself these questions. Why? Why 40? Why something like 45 or something like 50 or something like 10? Why 40? What's the significance? And why fasting? You know in the parallel passages that Jesus fasted. He had nothing to eat. Why a fasting of 40 days in the wilderness, especially during the temptation? I mean, wouldn't this have been a time for Jesus to receive all the nourishment that he could possibly receive in order to thwart the temptation of Satan himself? Well, the very clear answer is because if Jesus is going to lead his people and if he is going to be their prophet, he is going to have to act like a prophet. And did you know that this 40-day fast was a part of the prophet's ministry? Let me show you. Turn in your Bible to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. And these are the very intricate details that come to us and then explain and fill out what we need to understand, even about the temptation of Christ. Exodus 34. If there is any parallel between the children of Israel going into the wilderness after their Egyptian bondage and being led by Moses, then there's also a parallel in the similarities between Moses and Jesus himself. And no doubt Jesus was taking his cues from the fast of Moses. In Exodus 34, it says in verse 28, So he, that's Moses, was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Isn't that interesting? One of the very reasons why Jesus Christ 
is being compelled by the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights was to be the perfect fulfillment of the prophet-like status of Moses himself, who also led his people into the wilderness. He fasted, and interestingly enough, 40 days and 40 nights, not eating any bread or drinking any water. Similarly, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it says this in verse 9, When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. In verse 18, I fell down before the Lord as at the first forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Why? Because of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. What was he doing? Moses, by not eating or drinking bread or water for 40 days and 40 nights, was, as the prophet of God, as the leader of God's people, taking the collective sins of the people before God and saying almost like Stephen did when he was being stoned, O Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. You see, that's what a prophet should do. That's what a shepherd and a leader should do. Should come to God collectively with the people. That's why on Sunday morning, I have a, a long prayer that I like to pray called the pastoral prayer. And you know that I will read the Scripture and then when we pray, I will collectively bring our sins before God. And I will say, God, forgive us of our iniquities. You notice that most of the time I'm centering in on sin and I'm centering in on the things that we collectively as a church body need to confess before the Lord. You see, I believe that to be my duty to go before God and to do what I can to see our sins confessed rightly before Him. And that's precisely what Moses is doing. And that is precisely what is being pictured here in the very temptation of Christ. He knows that one day he will be the burden bearer. He will be the sin bearer. And he must now go through the very testing of Satan himself so that Christ can one day take the sins of his people before God. That's what's going on here. Even Elijah in 1 Kings 19.8, does the very same thing. And obviously, some of the things were different. What were the differences? Moses had sin in his own life. Elijah had sin in his own life, but Christ did not. His fasting, his 40-day vigil, is his utter submission to God. Not as a sinner, but identifying with the sinfulness of his people so that he could one day be the sin-bearing substitute, substitute for sinful, repentant men. If you'll look at Joel 2.12 at some point in your Bible study, 1 Samuel 7.6, Nehemiah 9.1, Daniel 9.3, it all talks about a fasting with a purpose in mind. You know, I often hear people talk about fasting, and sometimes it seems to me that I hear people talking about it 
as though it's a form of weight loss. That has utterly nothing to do with fasting. It has nothing to do with the spiritual implications of what a person does when they fast. You know that even in the Bible, although fasting is not commanded, it's not a form of a spiritual maturity as such. If so, we would have been commanded to do it, especially in the epistles. But what fasting does for us is it causes us to move away from the mundane. It causes us to move away from the biological, to move away from that which is earthly, food and drink, sustenance. And it causes us to be catapulted into another dimension, and that is dependence. If any of you had, had fasted, I've fasted a few times in my life, and if any of you have done that, you know that within the first couple of days, it is a tremendous test, isn't it? Your body goes through changes. It's, it's crying out for food. It's crying out for, for intake. And what you have to do is, is to get over that hump and begin to realize that what may be going on physically is only a foretaste of that which should be going on spiritually, and that is dependence. You're saying to God, I'm dependent for food, but I'm more dependent for you. That's what fasting's all about. And Christ is living out in this 40-day fast the very essence of that. He's identifying with his humanity, even from the physical part of his being, his recognition and identification that while he himself is sinless, man is very sinful and not worthy of any food which can nourish his body, provide life for his body. And I'll give you another reason, I think, that it's a 40-day fast that we're talking about here. Does that not also correspond with the 40 years of temptation by the children of Israel in the wilderness? The term 40 is very significant in the life of the Jews, and it's significant here. In Psalm 95, verses 10 and 11, God said of the children of Israel, when they wanted manna and didn't look to God for their true spiritual sustenance, he said this, For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who err in their hearts and do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. That was a very serious thing. And when God, as a as a manifestation of his love and his grace, were to provide the physical nourishment through the manna that they desperately needed, what was their response? We don't want the manna. We want something else. And see, God knew that their focus was not completely and wholly upon him. Their focus was on their belly. Their focus was on themselves. And when you look at the temptation of Jesus Christ, you know immediately that when he was tested for 40 days and 40 nights without bread and water, his utter submission and dependence was upon God the Father. He didn't waver. He was totally opposite of the children of Israel. And it says that he was tested by Satan in the wilderness. That's the place and that's the person. He was tested by Satan in the wilderness. The wilderness, as I said a moment ago, was associated with demons, with wild beasts. It even says in Luke 8:29 that it was associated with those things. 
says, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. It had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. You see, that was a place that the Jews didn't want to go. They knew what that place meant. Even in Luke 11:24, it says similarly, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Isn't that interesting? The demonic, they stay in the wilderness. And that's no doubt why Mark includes in the phrase, in verse 13, and he was with the wild beast. What a a test. What a test on the part of the Son of Man. A gloomy place of terror, the abode of devils and unclean wild beasts. And as the demons came out of the man at Gadarene, so is the thought of the beasts in the wilderness. And who is this person who's tempting Jesus in the wilderness? Satan. Being tempted by Satan. That's a, that's a hideous term, isn't it, in our minds? Satan. Used 35 times in the New Testament. It means adversary. One who opposes. It wasn't always that way, as you know, with Lucifer. God's mighty angel who was a created being. Who apparently was lovely in appearance. And highly exalted. But he wanted more. He wanted to be like God. If Isaiah 14... Ezekiel 28, or any indication, it says, until there was something found in you that you wanted to be like God. He opposed God from the very start. And he was thrust out of heaven along with a third of his hosts, and they come for us to be known as the demonic, the demonic host. Satan himself, he's the superhuman adversary. And he is obviously the person for whom Jesus is doing real battle. You know, you and I, when often we say we're being tempted, we might say of ourselves that we're being tempted by Satan. Well, it's probably true that Satan is not anywhere around us. Satan is dealing in the cosmic level with the Lord Jesus Christ, even now. For doesn't it say in Revelation that he stands before God day and night to accuse the brethren? All the time, Satan is going to and fro about the earth accusing the brethren. And his hosts are doing his bidding. In Job 1.6, Job 2.1, Zechariah 3.1, 1 Thessalonians 3.5, he's called the tempter. The one who tempts. And this is his mission here. This is the battleground. This is the apex. If Satan believes that he can get Jesus Christ to fall at this point, and believe me, if he didn't believe he could do that, he wouldn't be there. He's not dumb. He's smart. He's a very intelligent being. Probably intelligent more than all of us combined. Not all powerful, but very intelligent. And if he didn't think he could get Jesus Christ to stumble, to fall, to doubt God, he wouldn't be there tempting Someone said, this is the great encounter between Jesus and Satan. Jesus' exorcisms 
his healing of the sick and raising the dead, his self-identification with sinners, his refusal to adopt any other methods but those ordained by his Father, all these are the offensive weapons of the Son of God against the power of Satan. Here, at the very beginning of, his ministry of, Je- of the ministry of Jesus, the devil attempts to win a decisive victory by diverting his opponent from the path of the servant to some less costly way. If Satan can tempt Jesus to doubt God, to do something other than going to the cross, he will attempt to tempt him to do it. And what Mark implies, Matthew tells us straight out. Here's Jesus' response. Be gone, Satan. In Matthew 4, 1-11, you can read it on your own. There contains the actual dialogue between Satan and Jesus Christ. And the reality, the conclusion for us, is that Jesus Christ withstood every temptation that Satan put his way. And after he was victorious in this great temptation, notice what it says in verse 13. And the angels were ministering to him. What were they ministering to him? Well, I can imagine that one of the first things they did after he said, Begone Satan, and Satan took off, is to minister to him with food. The fast was over, the forty days and nights were done, and after Satan left, he is probably hungry. And they're going to minister to him with food. Isn't that a wonderful picture of God's protection, of God's design? Praise God that even for us, being obviously less tempted in so many ways because we fall to that temptation so often, God still, knowing that we're feeble and frail as dust, comes to us with food, both physical and spiritual. And it says in Hebrews that we have ministering spirits who come and who take up our cause. What a wonderful thing. God ministers to us just like Christ. And I think there was another reason. They were also protecting him from the beast, no doubt. From the wild beast that would have attempted to kill him, to eat him. And this most assuredly gives us a picture that God in his ministry to Christ through the angel is not going to let anything happen to our dear Christ. He's won the victory and they're serving with him. Now, as we close our message tonight, let me ask you some key questions. With these two key features of the thruster and the tempter, with the wilderness, with the temptations, with the fasting, with the 40 days, with the angels ministering, what does it all mean for us? What does it matter? What's the relevance? How can I apply this to my own life today, right now? Well, if you're like Thomas Brooks, the old Puritan, it would be like this. Christ, the Scripture, your own heart, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be saved here, nor happy hereafter. In other words, Thomas Brooks was saying, we must study these temptation narratives 
against the Lord Jesus Christ by Satan so that when we learn them, we can begin to learn some of the very devices of Satan himself for our own life. If you were to do a Bible study on Matthew 4, 1-11, you would find out that every time Satan came to test Jesus Christ in that wilderness with the 40 days of fasting without bread and water, Jesus Christ responded with what? With the Word of God, with Scripture. That's something to learn. That's something to grow by. Know the Word of God when you're tempted by Satan. Know God's Word so intimately that when He comes to tempt you, know it in such a way that even if He attempts to twist the Scripture itself to seduce you, you can know His hermeneutics. You can know what He's doing, just like Christ. When Satan came to Christ, what was his response? In essence, he said, you're twisting the Scripture, Satan. Christ knew the Scripture and knew how to defend himself against those attacks. Do we know the Scriptures well enough to defend ourselves against those subtle attacks of Satan? John Owen, in his book, Sin and Temptation, says, the first Adam succumbed in an environment that was beautiful and friendly. Who was that? Adam, Adam and Eve. The last Adam maintained his purity in an environment that was desolate and hostile. Interesting. When we assume that all things are well, when we assume that everything in our own environment is conducive for spiritual victory, watch out. Watch out. When we think that victory is within our reach, watch out. For satanic temptation is just around the corner. In the words of Billy Sunday, the old turn-of-the-century evangelist, he said, Temptation is looking at Satan through the keyhole. Yielding is opening the door and letting him in. And it's so true of our Christian life, is it not? That when we think that there is victory, when we think that the door is closed and we're safe, we're opening the door and yielding to him and letting him in and letting him test us and tempt us to sin. Have you forgotten the wonderful and encouraging words of the writer to Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15? He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. How is it relevant to us? He has been able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hey, it is not wrong, it is not wrong at all that when you are being barraged by temptation to cry out to God, Christ, I need your help. I need your help. I cannot do it by myself. And I know that you will sympathize with my weaknesses. Help me now. Help me now. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Are being tempted? Being tested? Christ can come to your aid. He can come to you so that you can withstand the very testing that he himself withstood lo those many years ago. Boy, this is a great test. This is a wonderful text. And if you were to put together Mark 1 and Matthew 4 and Luke 4 
And if you were to look at all of the other places where Satan was tested in the Garden of Gethsemane and other places, I believe you could come up with a theology of withstanding temptation. Folks, know your Bible. Know the Word of God so that you are able to withstand the very testing of the satanic host in your life and in my life. When you do, you're going to be far closer as Christ and withstanding in such a way that you will be approved by God. And when you are, that is when victory is really sweet. Let's pray together. Our dear Lord, we are so thankful that you did indeed withstand every temptation of Satan. And we know, Lord, it is illegitimate for us to say, well, he was Christ. He was the perfect God-man. So those passages which speak of Christ being able to sympathize with our weaknesses and being able to come to our aid at least implies for us that he, being tempted as we are, yet without sin, can legitimately help us in great time of need. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us a very clear word tonight, and that Jesus Christ is our model and our example of withstanding any temptation that comes our way. We know that we are not sinless, and we know that we may indeed stumble and fall, and we will. But Lord, we're asking you to deliver us from the pattern of sin, from the habits of sin that have been a part of our lives that we desperately desire to break. Lord, we're asking in the language of the day that you would come through for us. Bless us. Bless us, we pray, with the Word of God in our hearts and the Holy Spirit of God, who when He tests us, it is always for the purpose of maturing and strengthening our faith. We know that testing will come. We know that when it comes, we will need to consider it, as James says, all joy, knowing that it is producing in us an endurance with a perfect result, that we may be fully mature, lacking in nothing. Thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the, these dear, committed people who have chosen to come out to sit under and be helped by the Word of God. We thank you for all of these things. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.